Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Brian Ballow. If you're new to the show, we'll tell you a bit about Backstory. Joanne, Brian, and I are all historians, and every week we dive into a story in the news, and we look at that topic across American history. So, Brian, Joanne, let's begin today's show by heading to an island in the San Francisco Bay in 1917. A ship pulls into the dock, and it's full of immigrants, including young women traveling from Japan. They've come thousands of miles to meet their husbands in America. They would have the pictures of their husbands in their hands. This is historian Judy Young. Then they'd be peering across the waters and trying to find their husbands. And so you could say that that would be the first glimpse they might have of their husbands. Wait a minute. What what do you mean first glimpse? Yeah, that's really the first time they're laying eyes on the men they were going to be married to. And they finally get a chance to see those men up close. It's in a drafty immigration station. It's not until the interrogation when the Board of Special Inquiry brings the two of them together into an interview room that they actually do see each other for the first time. Not the most romantic of locations. So I'm guessing that these are arranged marriages, Ed. Can't put anything past you, can we, Brian? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, that was common practice in Japan at the time, but it became something new in the United States. These women were called picture brides. This was the traditional way of getting married that they kind of adapted to the situation for Japanese uh, men in America by doing proxy marriages where the parents would still look for a a good bride or wife for their son in America, but uh, they don't need the son to come back to Japan to seal the deal. They could have it done in proxy and just enter the woman's name in the registry and make that legal. Uh Then after um, the woman is entered into the registry, she um, is obligated to stay in Japan and live with the in-laws for at least six months. I wonder what the marriage rate in the United States would be today if people had to live with their in-laws six months before they got married. I think that, that would, <laughs> well, we, we would see the numbers plummet, I would imagine. Yeah, and um, the, one of the reasons that the picture brides that were willing to um, marry someone in America is they can get away from living with the in-laws. <laughs> a strong incentive. That was a reason. <laughs> I gotcha. And then they would have um, the bride and the groom exchange photos. Right and letters so they could correspond like pen pals. Well, that's really interesting, Ed. I mean, on the one hand, you've got this new kind of courtship, but it's also part of an old story of immigrants adapting their traditions to the United States. That's right, Joanne. Picture brides are a creative response to immigration restrictions. And that is definitely something that has been in the headlines a lot lately. We're going to have a very, very strict ban, and we're going to have extreme vetting. The order puts a 120-day hold on all refugees settling in the U.S. This executive order was mean-spirited and un-American. 
Nearly half of Americans said that they supported tougher immigration restrictions. Trump's recent executive order isn't the first time that the United States has blocked immigrants from specific countries or even entire regions. So today's show is going to be the first of two episodes on American reactions to immigration. It goes to a long-standing tension at the heart of our national identity. So many Americans are descendants of immigrants, yet so many of those Americans are suspicious of immigrants. We're going to look at some of the immigrant groups who've been targeted, from the French in the 1790s to Italians, Slavs, and Asian immigrants in the 19th and 20th centuries. We're also going to look at some lesser-known immigration bans against people with flat feet, for example, or insufficient facial hair. But first, let's return to those Japanese picture brides. They managed to exploit, in surprising ways, a loophole in her immigration laws between 1908 and 1920. So, Ed, I know that we restricted some Asian immigration, but could you refresh my memory on how that actually worked? Yeah, Brian, the white backlash to Asian immigration began almost as soon as Chinese laborers started arriving on the West Coast. Now, this was in the 1850s during the California Gold Rush. As long as their labor was needed, they were welcomed. But soon after, the gold rush petered out, and particularly in the 1870s, when economic depression set right. in uh, in California and the West Coast. So they were seen as causing uh, unemployment and taking jobs away, and they also were discouraged from settling and integrating into the larger American society. Asian immigrants faced much more severe restrictions than immigrants from Europe. People from Asia couldn't become naturalized citizens or even own land in many states. Other laws prohibited marriage between Asian men and white women. And immigration restrictions made it very hard for any Asian woman to come to the United States. Okay, Ed, so I'm guessing this is going to bring us right back to those Japanese picture brides? You're very insightful, Joanne. Yes, it is. <laughs> In 1907, the Japanese government negotiated a special deal with President Teddy Roosevelt. They were seen as, you know, a, a rising superpower. Yeah. And they actually had the diplomatic respect of the United States government. Now, the U.S. wanted to end Japanese immigration, but the White House didn't want to offend the Japanese government. So Roosevelt came up with this non-binding deal known as the Gentleman's Agreement. And it agreed to stop the immigration of Japanese laborers to the United States. But Japanese laborers in the United States can still send for their wives and children. So they took advantage of that loophole to get their women to come to the United States. Now, marrying someone you've never even laid eyes on sounds like a pretty big gamble to us today. So I asked historian Judy Young, what was the rate of success for these couples? I think about 80 percent. Uh-huh. Uh, there were stories of women um, not being happy with their husbands um, because they had lied about their ages or they had lied about their economic status in America. Right. The women had not expected to um, live in segregated communities and work as hard as they did uh, as homemakers as well as, you know, farm workers and raising families. And it, I mean, ma all of these marriages are not based on love and, and courting romance yeah. the way that American marriages were at this time. They would all say that love comes later and sometimes not at all. But 
once you are married and you have children and you're a family, it's almost like a obligation to follow through um, and make it work. Divorce was not an option for this generation. Uh, and how, how many people? Well, total 20,000 women were able to come as picture brides and join their husbands in America during this period. Now, the, the government was always worried and concerned that women coming this way as picture brides, right? Um, they did they were prostitutes or they uh, will become laborers uh, and help the husbands with their businesses. And there was this propaganda going around in the Sacramento and San Francisco newspapers that the picture bride practice was barbaric and un-American and undemocratic that there's this real threat that more people, more Japanese people and a new generation of citizens uh, would be a threat to white racial purity. So I think for all these reasons, they began to find a way to stop this practice. It's not because it failed in any way. It's because it was succeeding too well in some ways. Yes, because okay. of families and communities settling and developing in America was a threat. Congress finally signs a ladies' agreement huh. in 1920, where Japan agrees to stop letting women immigrate to U.S. as picture brides. So after 1920, men could no longer resort to this practice. Um, but in 1924, they passed an immigration act that barred immigration of aliens ineligible to citizenship. And who are the aliens ineligible to citizenship? The Chinese, the Japanese, the Koreans. And that's how they stopped Japanese immigration totally. And that was in 1924. Now, Judy, this is an interesting story, but it doesn't really happen for a very long time. Why does it matter? What's the legacy of this? Well, their legacy is that they're the, they form the foundation for the development of Japanese-American families and communities. They made the second generation and future generations of Japanese in America possible. Judy Young is co-author of Angel Island, Immigrant Gateway to America. So, guys, that was a pretty heartening story of the way the Japanese families made lives for themselves in the face of all this opposition. But we know there's more to American immigration than heartening stories. Joanne, if we could get a start at the beginning of American history, let's, let's take a sort of a scan of the oscillations in American immigration policy. So what was it like at the beginning? Well, in the early republic, I mean, I guess I would say there's some ambivalence about immigrants. Because on the one hand, I mean, if you look at something like, um, <laughs> surprise, I'm going to mention Alexander Hamilton, um, Hamilton's report on manufacturers, you can see in there that he's thinking about in the future, there might be a more manufacturing kind of a nation. And he's excited about the fact that Americans will be able to be working at this. But he's also thinking about how that will attract immigrants and, and give immigrants something to do. So he's on, on the one hand, and not only Hamilton, are enthusiastic uh, about bringing people in. And on the other hand, at that same moment in time, you 
flip that around and they're looking at Europe and they're looking in particular at France and they're seeing... Yes, France. They're looking at France. Um, they are looking at France, and they're afraid of what, what they see. They see social upset. They see a king getting killed. So you're talking beheadings. about the French Revolution, Joanne. I am indeed talking about the French Revolution. So on the one hand, they are excited about immigrants, and on the other hand, given that it's a brand new nation, they're still establishing things like national character, national identity, even just the basic workings of the government. And lo and behold, there's the scary French Revolution happening, and People potentially coming from there to the United States, that's a scary thing. Yeah, and they they split all this pretty finely. Uh, You know, Benjamin Franklin worries a lot about what kind of immigrants from Europe are going to be okay. And uh, my ancestors, the Scots-Irish, he's not so sure about uh, that. (laughs) They seem to be a little bit too drawn to uh, the fighting and to the violence. That's why they uh, sent him to Tennessee. Yeah, exactly. Oh, but but you know, there's okay. This allows me to say one of my favorite goofy things. Actually, and I have too many favorite goofy things. That's all right. But there's someone from the time period who actually says that his impression of what America is going to become is a Mac-ocracy, meaning everyone will be named Mac, Mac, Macintosh, McIntyre, Mac and... So he, <laughs> and he's he was talking right. about that very Brilliantly thing. Brilliantly anticipating McDonald's. I love it. <laughs> he was. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because, of course, the first kind of crisis uh, in immigration history in the United States comes from a lot of Macs and O's of uh, the Irish who were coming in because of the devastation of their economy there by the potato blight. And the United States is not really sure that it likes these When mil- was this said? This is in the 1840s, 1850s. And what people worry about is that these fragile structures of government and economy that Joanne's talking about are going to be overrun by all these people who are poor and rural, but they were also Catholic. And that's a longstanding thing, right? There's kind of an ongoing fear of Catholicism and Catholics in America, which, I mean, it's kind of quirky. My, my gut instinct would be that part of that must have to do with fears about loyalty, where, I mean, were Americans worried about Catholics being more loyal to the Pope than to the United States? I don't know. What, what, where, how do you guys well, I, well, I sense that out? I wonder what Brian thinks about this, but it strikes me that that's the long-running continuity in all this is that there's some locus of loyalty that's not Mm. America. If it's not the pope, it's somebody else. It goes back to the early republic, Joanne. It's about independence. (laughs) You can't have citizens who are not thinking for themselves, and might they be controlled by others, whether it's radical French ideology, whether it's the pope, and in the 20th century, whether it's a communist cell that's telling them how how to think. You know, those are really great points. And it occurs to me that what we're always afraid of is some group that's more coordinated, hierarchical, authoritarian than we are. The very thing we love about ourselves, that there's nobody in charge, is also what freaks us out. That's there's exactly nobody right. in charge. <laughs> Joanne and Ed, looking at this from a 20th century vantage point, maybe even 21st century, what strikes me is how little the national government had to do with anything. I mean, the national government didn't stop anybody from coming in, as far as I can tell. But there's another case that driving through all of this is a huge demand, need for labor in large parts of the country. Not only is the economy growing, but the continent itself is growing. And so whether it's the West and the Chinese or it's the East Coast and the immigrants from Europe coming in working in factories, 
there's a great need everywhere except the American South, where there's this great surplus of labor of people who've been held in slavery. So as you think about sort of the drivers of American immigration policy, economics is always a key part of it. And big business consistently throughout American history uh, has been in favor of the free immigration of labor to basically create a larger labor supply and drive down the price of labor. They're in favor of it until they're not. And you think about the railroads, the first big business are in favor of Chinese immigrants until suddenly, no, they're not. Until they don't need the labor. Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. Well, not only do they, do they not need it, but because they've gotten it, it, it now it's scary and intimidating. And we know, we know when we fast forward the film, we're soon going to have draconian restrictions in 1924 uh, that really cuts down significantly all immigration, pretty much li- limits it to a trickle. Brian, you talked before about labor. After the labor needs of World War I have come and gone, after the Red Scare, in which they're worried about Bolsheviks coming to the country, have kind of settled down, they said, listen, this is out of control. Here's what we're going to do. Let's pass a new law saying that the new immigrants can only represent 2% of the immigrant groups that are already in the country. And guess what? Most of them happen to come from Western Europe. It's amazing, isn't it? Just funny how that (laughs) math worked out like that. And this is striking when we think about the rich ethnic history of so much the United States, the people they were trying to keep out were the Italians, you know, people from Southern and Eastern Europe, and also trying to keep out Jews. So 1924, and then for a pretty long time there, that is the status quo. Yeah. All right, Ed, Joanne, I'm going to pivot here, Uh and I'm (laughs) turning on the flag blower. My dad used to bring me to rotary meetings when I was growing up. And not only was there an American flag and everybody said the Pledge of Allegiance, but there was a flag blower. It was a machine that made the red, white, and blue wave in the breeze while we said no. that. I'm not, <laughs> how could one make this up, right? I and, guess And that's true. you may make fun of me, but when I think of all the immigrants that have come to the United States and have successfully assimilated and have pushed back with new ideas and new forms of labor and even organizing labor. I get teary-eyed. I'm really quite moved that we are a nation for all our problems that has successfully integrated so many of these immigrants over such a long period of time. I think that's true, but, you know, it, and I agree with what you just said, and I feel the same way, but but the idea of setting up a blower <laughs> so that you could have the flag look nice, it's so evocative of what we're talking about yes. here, which is this is what we want it to look like, right? This is the beacon. This is what it means. But then when you get to the reality of it, it's not the pretty flag with the blower. It's It's a lot more complicated. But we like the way it looks. You know, we like to think of ourselves that way. It's so much more complicated when you get beyond that blowing flag. Reminds me of the ad they had at the Super Bowl recently in which uh, 84 Lumber, for some reason, used enormous investment in an ad to show a woman and her little girl uh, apparently coming into the United States illegally, but the little girl is picking up scraps all along the way with which she makes an American flag. You know, I thought it was, you know, that I could not be moved by a Super Bowl ad, but in fact I was. Did you see, did you go online and see the end of it? Which apparently, 
I did. What happened? Because I thought, I thought, wow, that was really moving. They get up to this wall, and they're standing there, and she's got the little flag, and you think, oh, no, they're not going to be able to get through. And they, they sort of walk a little ways, and there's a door in the wall. And the, the door opens, and the light kind of streams through, and the mother and daughter sort of hold hands and head off into the sunlight. It, it, it was like it was moving and kind of gripping and sort of made me very sad. And, and then it had that sort of amazingly sort of... Saccharine? Yeah, ascending into the heavens, kind of, oh, you know, and America opened its doors and let us in. So it was like of the moment, but it went right back to the blowing flag. Well, that's what I was getting ready to say. It it, it makes the analogy in real time, Joanne, that you were just making. So yeah. we, we like our flag to be beautiful and blowing in the wind, artificial or otherwise. We know this is the best of America. We know that we're the country that has been the welcome to the world. But we also know that sometimes we don't rise to that standard, and we succumb to our own worst instincts. You know, we've been talking about how immigration restrictions have grown over time. It reminded me of an interview we did a couple of years ago about another type of immigration ban that was in place for more than a century. In 1882, a new federal immigration law barred anyone who was, as the law said, a convict, lunatic, idiot, or any person unable to take care of him or herself without becoming a public charge. And that list of exclusions included children and adults with any number of physical disabilities or perceived defects. The list would include varicose veins, uh, flat feet, uh, hearing impairment, vision impairments, short stature, poor physique. This is University of Iowa historian Douglas Bainton. He says it's hard to tell exactly how many immigrants with disabilities were kept out of the U.S., For one thing, discrimination didn't begin at Ellis Island. Because the shipping companies did their own inspections. Because if they brought an immigrant over who was rejected, they would have to pay a fine for that person and they have to bring them back at no charge. The ticket sellers, ticket agents who were spread all over Europe also did their own inspections. These were non-medical people, but they would refuse to sell tickets to people who they thought would be excluded because they would be penalized by the shipping companies. And what this suggests to me is that people with really debilitating uh, disabilities might not have made it this far. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, they wouldn't have gotten through the initial screens. And also, if they had a mobility impairment, they wouldn't be able to get on the ship in the first place. Right, right. So can you give me an example of what this process actually looked like in practice? You know, uh, these officials deciding sort of on the spur of the moment that somebody was defective, right? There was uh, an Armenian Turk in 1905 by the name of Donabet Musekian who um, was diagnosed as suffering from feminism. That was the term that was used on his medical certificate. And it referred to a lack of male sexual organs or underdeveloped organs as a result of what we now know to be a hormonal deficiency. I mean, how would they, how would they know that? It must have been from a, a, a facial Trait? Yes. Because I know from reading your article that basically people are walking by, and when they see somebody who seems defective, they write an L on their back. Is that right? 
Right. There were there was a whole code for different kinds of defects. Oh. So X X for mental defect, L for lame. So the first inspection was really just a snapshot diagnosis as immigrants streamed past the inspectors and they would pull some people out, chalk on their back, and then uh, give them a closer inspection. Mm. So with Musekian, his hearing was extraordinarily brief. It was as if the board that was examining him was very uncomfortable. In this case, uh, one of them said, I move to exclude as likely to become a public charge. A uh, second panel member said, uh, I second the motion. And third said, he is excluded. Oh, wow. And uh, that was the entire hearing. But he, uh, he appealed to Washington, which all immigrants had the right to do. And he wrote in his appeal that he had always supported himself. He was a photographer, a weaver and dyer of rugs, and a, and a cook had worked at all of these. Gosh. And he wrote in his letter, I am not ill and have no contagious disease. This is not my fault. It has come from God and my mother. Mm. What harm can I do by being deprived of male organs? When he left, uh, he was fleeing the violent oppression of Armenians in Turkey and had been made to renounce his citizenship when he left. So he, he explained this in his letter, and he said, better that you should kill me now than send me back. Mm. And the Armenian genocide uh, took place just a few years after uh, he was sent back. Wow. So much of this focused around not being able to find work. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 what kind of evidence would they have of that? I mean, was that actually mm-hmm. true, you think? Um, that's the thing. There is a widespread assumption that a disability means being incapable of working. So in the case of Musekian, there really seems to be no reason to assume he wouldn't be able to find work. But there was an immigration service memo that explained why they should not be admitted, which was that their abnormality becomes known to their fellow workers who mock them and taunt them. Uh, which uh, impedes the work at hand. And uh, so employers know this and are unlikely to hire them. So it's for their so own good in, in many ways. Yeah, right? right. Well, basically we're saying that we have to discriminate against them now because they're likely to encounter discrimination later. So you say that these restrictions grew over time. Does that mean that they grew increasingly accepted? I mean, was there a sort of... Uh, turn against people with disabilities at, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the 20th century? Or was this just a sort of a more a bureaucratic uh, momentum that built? Well, I think there are a lot of different factors. One of them is the standardization of society in the industrial age. The term normal comes into uh, common use near the end of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a very powerful concept. People used to talk about human nature And then it shifted around the turn of the 20th century to a concern with what is normal, counting people, measuring people, seeing what the bell curve shows us about what are normal characteristics. And it's tied in with a lot of changes, the growth of cities, industrialization, where not only do you need standardized parts and replaceable parts, but standardized and replaceable human beings, Mm. workers. People with uh, disabilities don't fit as a cog in that larger machine. So... How long were these laws on the books? I mean, you say they sort of peak in the early 20th century. Then what happened? The immigration laws do not take out the language having to do with uh, specific disabilities or defects that are excludable until the 1990 Act. 
And still today, uh, we exclude people who are likely to become a public charge, and that's still a means of keeping people out with disabilities. So it still goes on. Douglas Bainton is a historian at the University of Iowa and author of Defectives in the Land, Disability and Immigration in the Age of Eugenics. We'll bring you the second installment in our series on immigration restrictions next month. Well, that's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your burning history questions. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And feel free to review the new show in the iTunes store. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Aidan Lee, Courtney Spagna, Robin Blue, and Elizabeth Spach. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Poddington Bear and Ketza. Special thanks this week to Kathy Pice and to the studios at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.